For the sake of time, I want to get right into it. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse 7. They're going to jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with verse 9. In chapter 4, it reads like this, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And then I want to jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, and reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then, and then only am I strong. I feel a very specific word, and I'm going to go right into it. If you'll receive it, will you give a hand clap unto the Lord tonight? Thank you, Jesus. In the beginning of the 20th century, the modern Pentecostal movement began. Beginning in 1901, Agnes Osmond would attend a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, where it was documented that she received the gift of the Holy Ghost with the infilling of speaking in tongues. Following this, the next several decades, would see the clash of ideas as an age of revelation swept the church, leading to what we know and believe to be truth today. And ultimately, the finalization of the organization that we're all a part of here, being founded in 1945. However, during this time, while the church, I believe, was catching what the Lord was bringing them to in this revelation, there were some other things that were happening in the world. You know, for the last year and a half, the, the catchphrase has been that we're living in an unprecedented time, and we were this close to having to wear masks tonight. And I know COVID has caused several casualties, and in fact, they're estimating there could be over 500,000 lives taken. And I'm sure there are people here tonight that have been affected by that. But let me tell you that that's not the first time that we've encountered this. In 1918, the Spanish flu claimed almost 675,000 lives with an estimated 5 million infected. That would not be the only obstacle, however, that the church would have to overcome in its infancy stage. You see, shortly after that, the First World War would begin. And, not too long, and before the halfway point of the century, we'd have another world war. Following that, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And while that just seems like history to you, let me tell you that during this time, our Pentecostal organizations were struggling. You see, they would have ministers that would be drafted. But because of their young stage, they couldn't get non-combatancy status. And so the ministers that were drafted wouldn't be able to avoid combat. And needless to say, that was devastating to the early modern Pentecostal movement. But more than that, if you listen to some of the stories of the elders that have, soon, have since passed, you will hear stories of how we had ministers and people that are trying to start churches that would have their lives threatened, not 2,000 years ago, but 100 years ago. They would be thrown out of towns. I know one story specifically where a man had a shotgun put to his chest because he was trying to preach the truth of the gospel. It wasn't an easy time. And it would leave the question to ask is how did men and women lead a revival in a time that was riddled with chaos and division and hatred? It's very simple. They did it like the early church did it. See, the early church was born in a time of Roman persecution. Many of the 12 disciples that we know and read and we glean from their works today, they lost their hands because of their devotion. And yet the Bible would say that these were the men that turned the world Upside down. How did they do that? It's quite simple, actually. <laughs> they preached Jesus. That was it. That's all they needed. That's all they needed to do. And they did it with every single ounce of their being, and nothing could stop them. 
They would preach Christ and him crucified. And guess what? That is what turned the world upside down. And that fervency, the fervency that would have the apostle Peter say that silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you. Or it caused the apostle Paul to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It was a fervency that did not care about any oppression, about any persecution, about any weakness that they would have. And that fervency that they had, the fervency that our forefathers had a hundred years ago, is the same fervency that this church today is meant to embody. It doesn't matter what situation, it doesn't matter what pandemic, it doesn't matter what virus, it doesn't matter your home life, it doesn't matter if your family is struggling. Let me tell you that the fervency to get the gospel out there is more important than anything. That's the fervency we're meant to have. And tonight, I know that there are people in this room that there have been things that are forced upon you. Situations in your families. <laughs> Divorced parents. <laughs> I can speak from a personal experience where I've had family members struggle with drug addiction. Things that should discredit you. Weaknesses. Oppressive voices from your family or from your school or from your co-workers that would try to silence you and try to prevent you from spreading the gospel. And those things have caused you to feel like you can't do what God has called you to do. But let me tell you, we do not preach to appease men. We don't preach based on our own circumstances. Or oh, we are not called of God because we are worthy. We are not called of God because we are perfect. But we are called of God because there is a need. And I know weaknesses will try to bring us down. But let me tell you that in our weakness, we are made strong. That's how it says that we can glory in our infirmities because there is nothing... There is nothing that could bring us down that the Lord can't use to further his kingdom, to bring us back up, to cause this gospel to reach the entire world. Oh, I know there's some people in here that have a call of God on their life, and you have been called, you have been chosen, but because of your past mistakes, because of what you may have done in the past, because of your family, and what they may have said to you, or maybe it was even a church hurt, let me tell you that these weaknesses that have been opposed on you cannot, they pale in comparison to what the Lord wants to do in your life. So how can this be? And this is my favorite part. If you don't get anything else from this short thing, get this. That we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This glorious covenant that's more glorious than anything in this entire world. And through that, we're empowered. Through that, we receive grace. And it's not just grace for forgiveness of sins, but it's grace that in our weakness, we can be made strong to proclaim this gospel. If you all stand with me, we're getting ready to go back into worship. Tonight, I just have a simple thing I want to say to you. That you have been struggling if you felt the call of God in your life when you were 15, but for the past four years, you have been struggling because there have been things oppressed on you. Can I just tell you to stand up and to pursue the call of God? Because when you do that, his grace will be sufficient for you. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The excellency of the power of God may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, okay, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, sure, but we are not forsaken. We have been struck down, all right, but we have not been destroyed. 
Why? Because His grace is sufficient. And though we may be weak in the flesh, we are strong in Him. And in that, I will glory. In that, I will praise. In that, I will believe. Our God has never lost. There is nothing that's too hard for Him. There is nothing that He can't overcome. If you believe that, will you lift up your hands? Will you come back to the front? And will you proclaim who your God is? If you have your Bibles, let's turn quickly to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Most of you could probably quote this passage of Scripture. But Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1, it tells us that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew phrase that's used here means that the earth was chaotic nothingness. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Tonight I want to draw our attention to a few characteristics about the God that we serve. And I'll be honest with you, I have wrestled with this over the last two days because I be slightly different in the presentation I normally might would use for a meeting like this. At times it may feel a little more like Bible study, but I believe that if we can grasp these principles, then it will pave the opportunity in the way that tonight could be a life-changing night for somebody in this room. Believe that God has something very specific that he wants to accomplish. And so for the next few moments, I wanna preach to us from this subject, lessons from a God who knows when to stop. A God who knows when to stop. Would you set your Bibles down and would you lift your hands to ask the Lord to help us in this place tonight. God, we are grateful today. Lord, it is very evident that you are already in this place. I thank you for your spirit that is present during worship. But God, I don't believe that you are done yet. I pray right now that your anointing would flow into this room. I pray tonight that you would anoint me, that you would anoint your word, God, that you would speak through an imperfect vessel and somehow, some way that your voice would be the loudest voice that is heard. Lord, anoint those who are listening tonight, that it would be a life-changing, defining moment, God, where, where forever some things are settled and forever some things are changed. And at the end of it all, Lord, we will be sure to give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Everybody say amen. You may be seated. In the book of Genesis chapter one, we are introduced to a God who has a tremendous amount of power. We see this power demonstrated in the text that we read as we find this God speaking into the vast void of chaotic nothingness. And with his simple utterance of the words, let there be, the scripture tells us that light is formed. As the chapter continues, we read similar accounts reported on each of the six creative days in which God forms the world as we know it. Each of these days are marked by a few common features. The first thing that we see is that time and time again, God uses the same words. He says, let there be, and every time he says, let there be, the result is always the same, that where there was nothing, now something was formed into existence. The second characteristic we see is that following the creative work of each of these days, God steps back and he looks at the creation that he has made and he puts his stamp of approval on it and he declares that it is good. And finally, the third thing that we see is that each of these creative days ends with the declaration that the evening and the morning represented the completion of the day. This pattern persists all throughout the story with the only variance coming on the sixth day after God creates the pinnacle of his creation, the crowning jewel of his masterpiece and humanity in the form of Adam and Eve. Verse 27 tells us that there was a specific way that God created mankind when it says that he created man in his own image. He formed man in his likeness, bearing a resemblance of himself. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. It is then only after mankind is created, only after humanity has taken its rightful place amidst the creation masterpiece that God steps back and he looks at the entirety of his handiwork. He looks at the totality of his design. 
He views the final picture of his creation. And in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, we are told that God saw everything that he had made. And behold, this time, it is not just deemed good, but he says that it is very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. As we continue into Genesis chapter 2, we find an interesting conclusion to the creation narrative. Verse 1 tells us, thus all the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made and he rested. Everybody say rested. He rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. Verse 3 says, God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all of his work which God had created and made. I'll be honest with you tonight, having been raised in church, I have heard this creation narrative no less than probably 50, 60, 70 times. I can remember being a Sunday school kid and sitting in the classroom and hearing the teacher teach about how God would speak into the vast void of nothingness and everything that we see today would be formed. I remember hearing how God spoke light into existence, how he formed the firmament, how he formed the the animals, and and he he separated these things. remember this story. I remember hearing how on the seventh day God chose to rest from his creation, but it was only in recent months that I began to look at this story in a different light. And considering that here we are introduced to a God that is obviously all-powerful, we are introduced to a God that obviously has a tremendous amount of power. He is all-knowing. He can accomplish anything. He can speak into nothing and everything be formed. It begs the question for me, why would Scripture be so intentional to tell us that on the seventh day, God rested? He rested. We know that this, of course, was not because God was somehow worn out. God did not get tired. He was not exhausted. We understand that it was not because God somehow ran out of creative energy. It could not have been because God needed to take a break and evaluate his next steps. That certainly could not be the reason that God rested. But when we look a little further and we consider the Hebrew word that's used here, the word for rest is used to mean to cease or to desist from labor. In other words, Genesis chapter 2 is not implying to us that God rested in the sense that he was tired, but rather it is informing us that God rested in the sense that he was done. God rested in the sense that what he had set out to accomplish had been completed. God rested in the sense that whenever he looked at creation and he looked at his masterpiece, he took a step back and said, it is finished. What I intended to accomplish has been accomplished. It was not that God God could not have kept going. It was not that he did not have more power that he could have shown off. It was that he had completed what he set out to do. One person exampled this in a way. They said, consider a famous sculptor like Michelangelo. Many of you have probably seen the famous sculpture of David that Michelangelo sculpted. He explained that at some point in time in the creative process, There comes a point in that process where the artist understands that if I take one more swing of the hammer against the chisel, if I take one more stroke of the paintbrush against the canvas, then I am going to run the risk of damaging the product that I set out to accomplish. There comes a point in the creative process where the artist takes a step back and he observes what he has accomplished and he says, that's it. That's what I was going for. That's what I set out to do. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 2. God could have kept going, but he rests. As we begin to unpack Genesis 1 and 2, we realize that there are several calls back to this same idea, several attempts to reinforce to us, the reader, a lesson on the value of rest. One of these efforts can be found in the repeated refrain that concludes every creative day when it tells us that the evening and the morning represented the completion of the day. Again, remember, I was raised in church. I've heard this no less than 50, 60, 70 times, but I don't remember ever considering the intentional wording that's used here. Because for us, we would be tempted to say that the morning and the evening equals the day. But here, there is intentional language that tells us that the day begins with the evening and it ends in the morning. 
This idea would even be carried out into Jewish culture as the Jewish religious day would begin and end at sundown. When the Jews celebrate the Sabbath, it begins on Friday when the sun goes down, and it ends the next day when the sun goes down. What was this? This was a subtle reminder that the first thing you do during your day is not work. The first thing you do during your day is not produce, but the first thing you do is rest. Ultimately, God, God's insistence on rest culminates as an instruction that the Jewish people would observe what would be known to them as Shabbat or Sabbath, a day of rest. And we find that the command to keep this day holy would even find its way into the Ten Commandments. And so the question I want to pose here this evening, at the outset of this message, is why on earth would God put such an emphasis on the idea of rest in the first two chapters of the Bible? To answer this, one man put it this way, and I'm inclined to agree with him. He said, we must go back to the context of when this was written. We must understand that it's likely that the first time these words would have been spoken by Moses would have been to the audience of the children of Israel who are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. This people has just been delivered from Egypt. They have now crossed through the Red Sea, and they're standing in the middle of the wilderness learning how to live as a free people for the first time. We must understand that for over 430 years, these children of Israel had known nothing but slavery. They had known nothing but bondage. They had known nothing but the oppressive rule of an Egyptian regime. And so when they are all of a sudden delivered, there was a process of a retraining that had to happen to teach them how to live as free people. What's more, we understand based on history and based on scripture that while they were in Egypt, there was a very specific job that was the role and responsibility of the children of Israel. The Bible tells us that it was the job of those men to build bricks for their Egyptian captors. They were brick builders by trade. We find that every day, seven days a week, from sunup until sundown, the Egyptian men would be building bricks. This was not some soft, cushy office job. This was hard labor. This was backbreaking labor that every day, day in and day out, 365 days a year, they were building bricks. The Bible even tells us that for each of these men, they were given a quota of bricks. There was a certain number of bricks that they needed to produce, and if they didn't, the consequences could be grave because their life might even be put at risk. As if self-preservation wasn't enough, these men understood that if their life was taken, that it would also put their family's life at risk. As it was likely that their, their wives and their children would be adopted into the Egyptian empire and potentially used and abused. And so it was very important to these men that every day when they woke up, they would go to work and they would produce bricks. Thus, the end result of a generation who never knew anything different would be a generation of people who are now standing in the wilderness free. But all that they have ever known is that their value was tied solely to the number of bricks that they could produce. And so right out of the gate, I believe that God knows he must retrain their thinking. And so one of the very first messages he delivers to the children of Israel was that their value was not tied to their production. Their value was not tied to their work. Their value was not tied to what they could create or manufacture in their flesh. But rather their value came solely from the fact that they were made in the image of God. That they were crafted and formed by his hand and his hand alone. And God, at the end of creation, knew when to stop enough and put his stamp of approval and said, I don't just think they're good, I think they're very good. What a message for those children of Israel to hear, but what a message for us, the North American church, to hear that our value doesn't come from what we can do in our flesh. Our value doesn't come from what we can produce in our own ability. Our value doesn't come from the job that we have, from the money that we make. It doesn't come from the car that we drive, from the house that we live in, from the clothes that we wear, but our value comes from one thing and one thing alone, and that is the fact that before you were born, God had already planned it out. He had already said, I'm going to make them in my image. I'm going to put my stamp of approval on them. I'm going to form them in the way I desire for them to be. 
And I'm going to declare that it is very good. Hear me, young lady. Your value doesn't come from your perfectly crafted Instagram photo that you're hoping gets a certain number of likes. That's not where your value comes from. Your value doesn't come from what other people build you up and say you're doing such a great job at this and you would be so good at that. Your value only comes from your creator who said, I formed you in my image. And I thought that you were very good. Let me speak to young, some young person who may have walked into this place tonight and you're at the edge of your relationship with God. No doubt in a crowd this size, there are some young people that every time you go to church, you pull yourself together and you get yourself into the building, but you're wrestling with questions and you're wrestling with doubt and you're wrestling with condemnation and, and with guilt and with shame because of some past mistakes. You're wrestling with some things because you don't feel like you are worthy. Maybe even the people in your church or your youth group or your family knows the mistakes that you have made and so you have begun to feel a separation from them. I've come to tell you that your value is not found in your perfection. Let me mess with some theology right now potentially. Your value to God is not found in your righteousness. Your value is not found in your good works. Because if it were, there would have been no need for Calvary. But Jesus, even when the masterpiece was marred, even when sin broke the, broke the chain and broke the connection, he said, I've already got a plan for that. And I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to be the one that goes to the cross and pays the price to redeem you back. And so if you're in this room and you're suffering with condemnation and you're suffering with guilt and you're suffering with shame and you're thinking that God could not love you, let me be a voice of reminder to you. It doesn't matter how far you have run. It doesn't matter how far you have gone. I don't care what dirty, nasty sin you have participated in. That's not where your value lies because your value still is shown by the act that was performed at Calvary. God still loves you. God is still reaching for you. God still wants to use you. God wants to bring you back into the fold. We understand that value, by definition, it's determined by the price somebody is willing to pay. There's a reason that certain cars are valuable. There's a reason that certain paintings are valuable. It's because there's somebody who's willing to pay the price. And at the risk of sounding cliche or cheesy, please understand that God loved you so much. And he knew that the only price that would pay, pay for your sin and pay for your redemption would be blood. And he said, I will be the one. And so how dare we cheapen his sacrifice? How dare we cheapen the value that he has placed on our life by buying into false narratives that the world would try and put on us because he was willing to pay the price. Your value is not found in what you can produce. It's not found in what you can create. It is found solely in the fact that God made you in his image. God formed you with his hand. And he put his stamp of approval and said, you are very good. Now please understand this does not excuse us from work in the kingdom. God also said that we should be fruitful and multiply, but that's not where our value comes from. Our value comes from the fact that we were made by him. If we rewind back to Genesis chapter one and chapter two, we find that this passage shows us two sides of the same God. On the one side, we see a God who has all power and all ability, a creative God who can speak into the vast void of nothingness and cause very life to come into existence. We see a God who sets planets into orbit and intricately designs scientific processes to govern his creation. We see this almighty God, this omnipotent God, this all-powerful God who can perform anything he desires to do. But on the flip side, we also see a God who knows when enough is enough. We see a God who knows how to restrain himself, a God who knows how to pull back, a God who knows when to stop. These two attributes, these two types of power are on display all throughout the Old Testament, and when we move to the New Testament, at least one of these types of power is given a name. In the New Testament, we find a word that is often used for power. It's this word dunamis. Everybody say dunamis. It's often associated with power to do that which is beyond one's natural ability. 
Dunamis can be this explosive, demonstrative power that is associated with supernatural happenings. Whenever the Bible talks about the mighty works that Jesus performs, it uses the word dunamis. Whenever the Bible in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that we shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, it's the word dunamis. Dunamis is the power to see miracles and signs and wonders. But there's a second type of power that we see represented in the life of Jesus Christ. And while it may not have a perfect Greek word, it is this idea of self-control. It's this idea of temperance. It's the power to restrain from doing something that is within one's ability to do. We see this display, this power to know when enough is enough, the power to know when to stop. When Jesus walks on the water, he raises the dead. It's his dunamis that's on display. But when he resists temptation in the wilderness, it is, it is his restraint, his self-control that is on display. With dunamis, he cleanses lepers, he heals blinded eyes, he unstops deaf ears, but with restraint, he holds his peace while being falsely accused before the Sanhedrin. With dunamis, he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with devils, casting them out of the demoniac. But with restraint, he wins his greatest victory over death, hell, and the grave. With dunamis, Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels to come and deliver him off the cross. But it is with restraint that he submits himself to the death of the cross, knowing that the purpose of redemption was greater. With dunamis, we find that God creates the world. But it is with restraint that we find that God saves the world. Repeatedly, we see these two types of power. We see it in the life of Jesus as he exhibits both dunamis and restraint, both the power to do and the power to restrain from doing. Hear me tonight, that as apostolics, what we often desire is dunamis, and rightfully so. It's our inheritance. The Bible says these signs shall follow them that believe. And when we get in settings like this, what we're often praying for is we want to see the miraculous and we want to see miracles and signs and wonders and rightfully so because it is our inheritance. We want to see a demonstration of the Holy Ghost. We want to see the supernatural. But oftentimes as Christians, as disciples, and specifically as young people, what we often lack is the power to know when to stop. What we want to see is the power to perform the supernatural. But what we often lack is the power to restrain from doing things that are within our ability to do. We lack the power to say enough is enough. The power to stop. Hmm. This is the battle of every person from Adam and Eve until today. We fight human nature's propensity to satisfy our every fleshly desire. Watch these verses in Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 19. Pay close attention because this is one of those tongue twister verses. This is what Paul says. He says, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that's what I do. Verse 20 tells us, now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Well, that's quite a tongue twister. It sounds like Dr. Seuss might have written it. This is some of the realest talk we can find in Scripture. Because what Paul is essentially telling us is he's saying, what I want to do, I don't. And what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Anybody ever been there before? He's saying, I go to church and I go to camp and I go to conference and I leave and I make up my mind and I make a commitment that I want to have a prayer life. I want to get in the Word of God. I want to fast more. I want to start a P7 club. I want to start a CMI chapter. I want to evangelize my world. But when I get home, that's not what I do. He says, on the flip side, whenever I leave, I make up my mind that I don't want to keep falling into the same sin and the same temptation. I don't want to be a repeat of my parents and suffer from the same addictions. I, I don't want to have this bad attitude, and I don't want to suffer from fear. Yet, when I find myself left to my own devices, that's exactly what I do. I think if we were honest in this room that Paul's sentiment could define our lives. Every one of us in this room has found ourselves in situations and seasons where what we want to do is not necessarily what we end up doing. Paul gives us hope. He gives us an answer in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. Watch these verses. He tells us this. He says, this I say then. Walk in the Spirit. Everybody say the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Paul is trying to help us understand that if we are walking in our flesh, if we are walking in our own mentality, if we are walking according to our will, we will never be able to exercise the discipline we need to overcome our sinful desires. But he says, if you will choose to walk in the Spirit, if you will choose to be led by the Spirit, if you will choose that every day when you wake up, you make up your mind that I'm not just going to be filled with the Holy Ghost on Sunday and on Wednesday, but my life is going to be led by the Spirit. He says, you will have the power to stop. You will have the power to restrain from fulfilling those sinful lusts. You will have the power to say enough is enough. He goes on in verse 17, he says, the flesh lusteth against. That phrase means it has desires that are opposed to the spirit. The flesh and the spirit are in this war. He says the spirit has, has desires that are opposed to the flesh. They're contrary one to another. So you cannot do the things that you would, verse 18. But if you be led by the spirit, you are not under the law. We see this often in the epistles as Paul, Paul writes to these Gentile churches about those who live after the law and those who live after the Spirit. I believe this is a little bit like what Moses and God were dealing with with the children of Israel, that Paul is trying to wrestle these people out of this slave mentality and say, now that you are living under the Spirit, you are not bound by the law. Let me see if I can make this make sense. What I have found is that living after the law can be somewhat an easy way to live. Because if I could paint a picture of what that means, it's simply the law is a checklist of do's and don'ts that says as long as I don't do this and as long as I do this, then I am in right standing with God. And so we come to church and we say, Pastor, tell me what to watch and what not to watch. And youth pastor, tell me where to go and, and where not to go. And give me the checklist. Somebody said one time, said, show me how you'll measure me and I'll show you how I'll behave. Show me how you're grading me and I'll show you how I'm gonna demonstrate my behavior. And so the law would say, here's your list of do's and don'ts. And as long as you check the right boxes, you're in right standing with God. But here's the issue. You can live your entire life after the law. You can check all the right boxes and, and dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But when you live after the law, you do not have to have relationship with God. Mm. In fact, there are some of us that have fallen prey to this at times in our lives where we knew how to be professional Pentecostals. We had that down pat. We knew I've got to dress this way. And, and when I get to church, I'm going to clap my hands. And we knew what we had to do to be in right standing with pastor. And we knew what we had to do to be right standing with our church and, and with our youth group. I checked all the boxes, but there was no relationship. There was no communion. There was no tie to, to the Spirit of God. We were just checking the boxes. But when you commit to live after the Spirit, see, Spirit-led living forces you into daily relationship with Jesus Christ. Spirit-led living says, I cannot make the decisions on my own. So every day when I get out of bed, I've got to find a place where I get into a prayer room and I say, God, I need you to lead me. God, I don't want to just be led by the Spirit on Sunday and on Wednesday when I'm with my church or my youth group. But I am trying to follow after the Spirit. Spirit-led. 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 Maybe some of you have heard this phrase before. Anybody heard somebody say that rules without relationship leads to rebellion? Anybody ever heard that before? Okay, think about that phrase with me. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. I've oftentimes heard this used whenever we're talking about somebody who backslid from the church. And maybe they looked at our standards and they looked at the, the list of rules and regulations and they decided that, that, wasn't, that they couldn't abide by that. And so I've often heard it said, well, they had the rules, but there was no relationship between Jesus Christ and them, and that led to rebellion. I don't necessarily disagree. I don't think that that sentiment is necessarily wrong. But I think there's a second side that we don't often talk about, and that's that relationship without rules leads to an affair. Rules without relationship may lead to rebellion, but a relationship without boundaries and without rules leads to an affair. It leads to us cheating on the one we were supposed to love. Let me see if I can break this down a little further. My wife is sitting over here. We've been married now for almost six years. Let me tell you, there are some things that I could do. It's within my ability to do them. 
But because of the covenant relationship that I've made with her, love draws the boundary. There are some things that I could look at. There are some conversations I could have. There are some places that are within my ability to go. But when I decided that I was going to enter into covenant with her, love began to draw a boundary that says just because you can, my love says that I won't. This is a picture of spirit-led living that whenever you begin to walk after the spirit, there are some boundaries that are drawn, not because God just wants to punish you, and not because God just wants you to have a bad day, and not because God wants you to stick out like a sore thumb, but he says these are the boundaries that if we're going to be in relationship, this is what it looks like. And so when we're living by the spirit, love begins to draw boundaries. Hmm. Love begins to say there's some places I won't go because God being holy and just and good, I know I'd have to let go of my relationship with him for a moment to come over here and participate in this. There's some things I won't watch because I've entered into covenant relationship with God and his spirit is leading me. I don't need pastor to give me a list of do and don'ts for every single thing because if I'm led by the spirit, the spirit says no here and yes here. The spirit says yes, this is okay and know I'm grateful for the covering. We need a pastor, and we need a youth pastor, but somewhere along the line, as a young person, you need to make up your mind that you don't have to live by a list of rules and regulations, but love begins to draw some boundaries. The Spirit begins to say, there's some things that I could do, but I won't do them. Not because it's not within my ability, but because my relationship with Jesus is more important. This is what it looks like when we're walking in the Spirit. Paul goes on, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He says this, he says, The fruit of the Spirit, the outward manifestation that the Spirit is at work in the life of a believer. This is what he says. When you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, there is always going to be an outward manifestation of what God is doing on the inside. When you are filled with the Spirit, your conversation will change. When you are filled with the Spirit, things you participate in will change. There will be an outward manifestation of the transformation that is happening on the inside. Paul gives us a picture. He says the representation of the Spirit, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering, it's gentleness, goodness, faith, verse 23, meekness, and here's the word, temperance, self-control, the ability to restrain, the ability to say no. He says, for those who are in relationship with God and being led by the Spirit, they possess everything that they need to reflect the image of their creator and to say, I know when to stop. In my flesh, I cannot do it. If I'm left to my own devices, I don't possess the ability. But I want to be so filled with the Spirit that whenever I walk into the world and I'm faced with temptation and I'm faced with an opportunity to let go of my relationship with God, that the Spirit says, no, you've got temperance. You've got the ability to master your own desires. You've got self-control. You can be disciplined. Everybody say discipline. That's one of those Christian curse words. We don't like that word discipline, but if we're going to make it to heaven, we've got to have it. We don't like that word, but if we're going to have relationship with God, we've got to have it. When we are walking according to the Spirit, following the leading of the Spirit, taking our cues from the Spirit, being sensitive to the voice of the Spirit, we don't necessarily need the law because the fruit of the Spirit fulfills the law. And when we're filled with the Spirit, we possess the power we need to overcome our flesh. We can restrain. We can follow in the likeness of our creator. We can know how to stop. I'm coming to a close. Musicians can come. I recognize tonight that this has been different. This is why I wrestled with it. I recognize tonight that, that we expect NAYC, we're gonna shout the house down and everything else and all this other stuff, but for the last two days, I have felt the Lord leading us this direction for a very specific reason. Because I know that I'm looking at a generation of young people that you possess everything that you need to turn your world upside down. I'm looking at a generation of young people that in this end time hour, God so strategically wants to use to bring the greatest revival and harvest that we have ever seen. 
I'm looking at young people that you are the key to harvest and revival in your local church. I'm looking at young people that if you ever got a hold of what God desired for you to do, you would start clubs and Bible studies and, and, and start teaching people in your school so much so that you would impact tens and hundreds, potentially thousands. Tonight, as we close this out, I want you to understand that it is not wrong for us to desire dunamis. It's not wrong for us to want that power to see the supernatural. It's not wrong for us to expect to see miracles and signs and wonders, the supernatural. Again, that's our inheritance. It should follow us everywhere that we go. We want to see that happen. We want to see that demonstration of the Holy Ghost. But here's where the rubber meets the road. The danger is that power without discipline is a dangerous thing. Anointing without discipline is a dangerous thing. Oftentimes, whenever we preach, we love to preach the stories of these great heroes of faith. Men like David, who was not perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart. Preachers like Paul and Peter that had their flaws, yes, but they finished the course and they fought the good fight and they finished the race. We love to preach those stories and, and as well as we should. But tonight I remind you that as good as those stories are, the Bible is also littered with a few tragedies. The Bible has a few stories that, that kind of point us in an opposite direction. In fact, one of the greatest tra tragedies that I find recorded in Scripture is the story of Samson. We find this man that he was born into covenant relationship with God. Before he had ever been born, it had already been determined that he was going to be something great, that God was going to use him, that God was positioning him to save Israel. It was, it was already determined that God had formed him in his image, and God had called him and anointed him in position. He was called. He was chosen. He was anointed. He was endowed with supernatural power in the form of superhuman strength. But unfortunately, we find that a lack of discipline, a lack of self-control and temperance becomes the demise as the call of Delilah becomes stronger than the call of God. For Samson, his character was not strong enough to sustain his calling. And the unfortunate end of his story is that this once great warrior is stripped down to nothing more than a blind, feeble slave. For a man like King Saul, a man that was called by God, a man that was called out of obscurity and into prominence. He was nothing on his own. He was from the smallest tribe, but God, looking for somebody who could be king, he said, Saul's my guy. The Bible says he stood head and shoulders above everybody else around. He looked the part of a king. He was anointed to be the king. The Bible even tells us that God had given him the heart of a king, but unfortunately a lack of spiritual discipline and an overwhelming sense of pride caused him to fall out of favor with God. For Saul, his character was not strong enough to sustain his calling. A man named Demas, lesser known character in the Bible. We don't know much about him. There's not books or even chapters that are dedicated to Demas. The best that we know is that he was a partner in missions with Paul. Evidently, at one point in his life, he was called. Demas was chosen. No doubt, Demas was even anointed. He was a preacher and a minister of the gospel. But the sad epitaph for his brief mention in the passage of Scripture is in 2 Timothy 4.10, when it simply reads, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed into Thessalonica. Somewhere along the line, his lack of discipline and his lack of character gave way to the demise of his calling. Why am I sharing these stories tonight? It's simply because I know, young person, that I know what God is desiring to do in this generation. But the, the greatest threat to the potential for what God wants to use you to do is that you would have power but not have discipline. That we would have dunamis, we would be anointed, but that we would not have self-control and restraint. That in our personal lives in church we would come and we would dance and we would shout, that we would come and we would look the part and check all the right boxes, but in our day-to-day -day life whenever nobody else was around, we recognized that our life was in shambles, that there was no relationship, that we lacked self-control. And so the greatest challenge that I could issue to you tonight as we all stand 
is that as we go into this altar call, no doubt this evening we need a move of the Holy Ghost. This evening we need a move of the Spirit of God. This evening my desire would be that every single person under the sound of my voice would have an encounter with the Spirit where once again you are filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But not just so that we can see miracles and signs and wonders. But so that when you go home at the end of this weekend, you go home understanding that you possess everything that you need to stop falling into the same trap that you keep falling into. That when you go home, you understand that if I can get into the flow and if I can get in alignment with the Spirit of God and I can partner with God and have relationship with God and be led by His Spirit, then no matter what trial I may face and no matter what temptation I may face, I possess everything that we need. Because power without discipline is a dangerous thing. All over this house, I wonder if you close your eyes right where you are. Right where you are, I wonder if you just begin to pray and seek the face of God. Come on, if you know that God has called you, if you feel that tug towards ministry and you feel that tug to be used by God, what I wonder is that something would begin to break in your heart tonight. That there would be a cry that would go forth that would say, God, I don't just want the power that showcases the demonstration of the Holy Ghost, but God, I want the power to be able to sustain the call. God, I don't want there to be a day where it would be written of me like it was of Demas, that somewhere along the line I, I was anointed and I was chosen and I was called, but I lacked what I needed to sustain the call to sustain the anointing. That something would begin to break inside of your spirit that would say, I want to be filled with the Holy Ghost, but I don't want to just be filled. I want to be led by the Holy Ghost. I want to be moved by the Holy Ghost. I want to walk in the Holy Ghost the name of come on right where you are I wonder if you begin to lift up your voice come on young person this type of altar call is not about anybody but you and Jesus this is not a decision that somebody else can make for you if you want to the altars are open this kind of prayer is not something that your youth pastor can pray for you or your pastor or your parents can pray for you but somewhere along the line you've got to make up your mind that this is worth the fight that this is worth the cost other people won't understand your sacrifice other people won't understand why you make the decisions that you make other people won't understand why you don't participate in certain things but you're saying God it's worth it not just so that I can be used by you but so I can be in relationship with you God it's worth it as long begins to draw the boundary and my relationship with you begins to draw the boundary God I'm committing myself again come on some young, young person needs to make up your mind that tonight will be a fresh night of consecration this first night of the Ascend Youth Congress weekend will be a night where we recommit ourselves where we realign ourselves where we lay aside the weights and the hindrances and the sins that have been tripping us up and we say tonight is where it changes tonight is where I make up my mind that 